Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks with a goal of taking the pain out of test automation for acceptance tests. To help with this, Gage supports specifications and markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write. Reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier and less code means less time maintaining your code. And finally, integrations. Use Gage with your favorite tools and IDEs in the ecosystem of your choice, like Selenium and Sahi Pro, CI and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. The team behind Gage believes in using web technology to test web applications. Head to gage.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Once again, gage.org slash jsparty. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. G'day, you're listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of everything JavaScript. I'm Sue Sinton, I'm your host for this episode, and as always, I'm joined by some fantastic panelists. So first of all, we have Cable. Welcome back. Hello, hello. Uh, we also have Nick. Uh, we're very pleased to have you on the show, Nick. Hi. And I'm very excited to introduce our special guest for this particular episode. We've been trying to get her on for a while now, so we're really, really excited to introduce her. Uh, we have Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Awesome. So you're currently based in Nashville, Amy. Why don't you tell the listeners uh, back home a little bit more about yourself as well and um, sort of your experience in CSS and that kind of thing? Sure. I'll try to keep it a little bit short, but sometimes my story gets a little bit long because there are some interesting uh, twists and turns there. So um, I went to a boot camp here in Nashville about four and a half years ago. And I graduated from that. I was doing JavaScript on the front end and back end for a while. Um, I will preface that even um, most people may know me as the girl that used to figure skate too. So before I did the boot camp, I was a competitive figure skater for most of my life. But uh, I did full stop JavaScript for a while. And then I started working for a company that was acquired by Warner Brothers. And when I was in that role, I was uh, I went from full stack JavaScript to being solely focused on the front end and not just front end, but when you work for a company like that, their styles are really just as important as the functionality. And when I was there, I realized kind of how poor my CSS skills were. So that's when, you know, I really decided to treat uh, learning CSS like I did learning JavaScript. And that's how I kind of just decided to like really deep dive into CSS and how the browser is actually rendering your style sheets. I think that's an excellent segue into the the sort of type of topic that we're focusing on for CSS in this particular episode. That's really cool. Um, and I wanted to sort of talk firstly about um, the fact that we do tend to revisit CSS as, you know, questioning the cascade, talking about modern approaches to it and things like that um, in different cycles, I guess. And this does come around a lot. And I wanted to bring up a an article that Cable actually wrote really recently, and I thought it was really interesting. Um, and it's just sort of caused a bit of a discussion around a, a Twitter CSS kerfuffle. And so I will actually pass to Cable and ask him to sort of introduce what he wrote the article for, you know, what, what the reasoning was, and also just like a little bit of background as well. Sure. So about a week ago, a little over a week ago, um, there was one of these big kerfuffles that seems to go around over and over again uh, with discussing the value of CSS. And there's kind of a camp within the JavaScript community that uh, tends to make pretty dismissive statements about 
CSS and the value of CSS and saying, oh, this is an old and outdated technology and uh, the cascade is broken and we should be doing all of our CSS in JavaScript. And there's another camp within the web development community that tends to say, no, that's wrong. CSS is really powerful. If you're not, uh, if you don't you know, think it's working, you don't understand it. And the there's kind of extreme versions of both of those arguments. And those that seems to go around regularly, uh, at least uh, for the last few years, there, you know, we'll see flare ups and there's lots of dismissive, um, dismissive argument on both sides there. And, um, I had actually gotten in this, uh, debate before almost exactly a year ago, there'd been a whole bunch of kerfluffle about this. And I'd written a relatively provocative post arguing that CSS and JS was not a very good solution, uh, which I, the, the blog post was very provocative and, and, there's a much more nuanced answer there than that that presented, but it was funny to me that this year, almost exactly a year later, this whole big argument was blowing up again. Uh, but I had noticed something in a lot of the discussions that I wanted to highlight, which was uh, there one a lot of the the discussion and language started to move rather than uh, just talking about technology choices, kind of dismissing uh, whole swaths of the ecosystem and. You know, you get, I think you know, one thing that, that we need to be very cognizant of is the moment that a discussion moves from, you know, this is not my technology choice or this doesn't work well from my use cases to saying anybody who's working in this is wasting their time. Uh, we've stopped talking about technology and we're starting to talk about culture and about, you know, who belongs and, and things like that. And this was something that I had uh, seen particularly a lot of women bring up. Uh, you know, the CSS world is interesting because it's one of the few areas in technology where many of the dominant feature, uh, people are women. Um, some of the top teachers in the space, the top people involved in the spec, I'm thinking people like Rachel Andrew, I'm thinking people like Jen Simmons. Um, it's one of the rare areas in our industry that is uh, much more um, dominated by women. And so I'd seen some of these sort of cultural conversations coming up about a lot of the kind of dismissal of CSS actually being able to be viewed in a gender context. And I started digging into that more and found that you know, this is actually not that uncommon in the tech industry for areas that are women dominated to suddenly, you know, if, if men start to try to get into them, they start to try to push and change the cultural conversation and exclude uh, things. And I thought, well, what if I, you know, I could write something about that and I'm a privileged white man, maybe different people would be able to hear that differently than they do or don't hear it coming from women, uh, which I'm not sure that that was the case. I think uh, the you know, we should talk about a little bit. The reactions were very bipolar, um, but that's kind of the background. So the, the blog post is uh, titled CSS Dismissal is about uh, exclusion, not technology, and kind of talking through the history of this and highlighting that you know, we have a lot of challenges to address in this in this area and that a lot of the um discussion appears or is starting to look like essentially trying to push people who traditionally do css out of saying oh those aren't real front-end developers if you're focused on css like you're not really doing engineering um and that that has a privilege and a gender component i think that this is a really excellent point and it's something that um just in sort of the the women in tech back channels, I see this topic come up a lot. And so I definitely think that this is a valid point of view. It's interesting because I think that Amy and I have had very separate um, transitions. So I've gone from primarily doing HTML and CSS and knowing those two technologies incredibly deeply, um, as well as how accessibility fits into that. And then I transitioned halfway through my um, front end career into writing primarily JavaScript for a long time. Whereas Amy, you started with full stack JavaScript and then you moved into CSS. So what has been your experience given that you had that realization that you didn't know it deeply enough? Like what sort of, uh, what sort of things do you think made you not really understand it as deeply as you might've thought you needed to at the beginning of your career while writing JavaScript in front end? Yeah, totally. So Thinking back to everything you just said, um, there is a lot of truth to what we've been talking about. And I will, in a roundabout way, probably like answer 
the question. Um, but in my boot camp, I was the only woman. Um, it was I did a six month boot camp, and so um, you had to finish the first three months, and then based on how you were doing, uh, you finished the last three months and. So after the first three months, I was the only woman left in my boot camp. And I can remember a number of times um, the guys in my cohort, and they are all great, um, you know, and, and also too, when we talk about like gender and stuff like that. So I live in the South and um, the typical gender roles are very much a part, Nashville's a little bit better, but, you know, being in the South, the culture here, uh, is very quote unquote traditional. And so all that to say, like, even in my boot camp, um, you know, the men would say, you know, well, you got to focus on the CSS cause you're the girl and stuff like that. Or, uh, jokingly too, cause I, I think they knew it bothered me <laughs> and, you know, just in like a big brother kind of way, not in a condescending or, or any, not in a negative way, but just in a joking way, say, you know, can you come over here and help me with my CSS? Um, but I think that had an impact on me, even if it was a, in a joking way where the more that they kind of teased and picked on me, the more I wanted to kind of break that mold and focus more on the back end and more just in JavaScript. I'll also say too, not only that, but just, um, you know, my personality is just that where I always kind of search for something that I think, and here's the key here, that I think is going to be the most challenging. Um, so being that, you know, CSS was kind of uh, picked on as being, you know, not a real, you know, real programmers don't focus on CSS. Um, I wanted to focus on what I thought was going to be the hardest. So all that to say, that's why I decided to really try to go the JavaScript route and really not focus on front end. I really want to do full stack so I could do a lot more on the back end. But just in the JavaScript space, you know, there's so much more opportunity right there on the front right now on the front end. So, you know, after about two years of doing full stack, that's when I went to front end and realized um, that I had kind of like fallen victim to this mindset that, you know, CSS was dumb and not for real programmers. And I think I had to have like a check with myself because, you know, if I wanted to call myself a front end developer and I'm handed a very complex layout, I should be able to implement the styles for that layout, just like the functionality in the JavaScript. I definitely went through a very similar journey. I think just in the backwards way where I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is this JavaScript thing that, that people think, you know, <laughs> is more important than, you know, writing really good semantic HTML and things like that. So that's super interesting, but I definitely have heard that same attitude where CSS becomes this feminized thing, which is, um, in a roundabout way, a way to trivialize it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's really what it comes down to. And I remember feeling that I wasn't, you know, when, when JavaScript became more performant in browsers and when V8 was released and things like that, I definitely felt threatened and felt like um, that I wouldn't be taken seriously as a front-end developer if I didn't pick JavaScript up. And I'm not going to lie, the main reason why I, f I focused on JavaScript for the next few years after that um, was because I wanted to be taken seriously. And I think that that's really interesting that CSS is seen as easy, um, which again is just a way to trivialize it. Um, and people tend to feminize things if they think it's easy or not important as well. And I honestly, I'm actually really interested to hear Cable and Nick's feelings on this about whether they think that CSS is difficult because I think that it is difficult to scale and it is difficult to write with large teams and also just being able to, at the time, navigate the different cross-browser incompatibilities was particularly challenging as well. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that it is difficult uh, to learn. I feel like my CSS skills have atrophied a little bit in the in the recent months, just because I haven't been paying uh, as much attention to it, being just because of the work that I'm doing, working on other things. But it is a uh, 
a super important skill to have. And it's something that I always struggle with. Um, and, and one of the harder parts of a project that I come in on is how to effectively organize it in a way that is reusable when I need it to be and um, avoids the cascade when I don't want it and um, issues like that. So it's definitely something that I need to work on and and get better at. I think what one thing that's interesting to notice is that the same people who dismiss CSS as easy are often in the next breath saying, oh, it's impossible to do this right and the cascade is so hard and it must be broken and all these other sort of comments about how difficult it is. It's, that's some, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, go, you can go ahead. Well, I was going to say, um, and I think this is kind of potentially like what spawned um, the blog post that you wrote. So I've been giving this CSS talk, which is a CSS talk, but, you know, really at the end of the day, I think it's more a talk about understanding browser internals and how the render or how the browser goes through this whole rendering process. Um, and, and with Max Stoiber, you know, tweeting out this little CSS quiz, I've had very similar you know, results. So in this talk I give, I have what I would consider a pretty simple specificity quiz. And it, I would say of the people in the audience, I've given this to like rooms of 300 to, you know, smaller rooms, but on average, I would say there's really only one or two developers in the room uh, who usually know the answer to the little specificity quiz that I have. So it's interesting to me, you know, I, I like to say that there are trade-offs for everything and, and that's just the honest truth. Um, but I think if you're going to pick one side or the other, you know, you should at least understand the trade-offs you're making and understand how CSS is, is working so that you can make an educated decision. It kind of like, I don't know, it all goes back to like what our mom and dad used to say to us when they say, you know, well, you know, you have to try one bite before you decide you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good analogy. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of remember I was a picky eater when I was little and my parents were like, you got to try one bite before you make a decision. So yeah, you got to, <laughs> I think you need to, you need to make sure you fully understand things before you, you know, kind of put, put your, you know, stake in the ground and say, you know, this is the camp that I'm in. Yeah, definitely agree. This might be a low self-esteem thing, but I tend to, if I'm having trouble understanding something, I tend to blame myself first instead of lashing <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, out too. at the technology. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. and then I will I will read everything in depth before I, before I slowly start to realize and it coagulates in my mind. And I'm like, oh, this might actually be a bug in the tool that I'm using and it's not me being dumb. <laughs> so true. I can relate to that so much. <laughs> well, and I think one thing to highlight is while I may be provocative on one side of this, like I think there's real nuance in the decisions for the tools that you make. And I think you know, your problem domain lends heavily. There are problem domains where CSS and JavaScript is absolutely the right technology choice. And there are problem domains where it's absolutely not. Um, you know, engineering is about trade-offs. I do think there's also something to be, you'll be I think we're going to talk about a lot of that a little bit more later, uh, but we really should highlight this kind of, you know, question of how do we make these decisions and what are the human sides of that like we as engineers often like to ignore the fact that there are uh well how should i say this we'll often make debates claiming they are completely technical and ignoring the fact that every engineering decision has human consequences and you know that shows up for us in terms of things like machine learning. We've talked about the ethics of machine learning and debates on that, but I think that also talk, uh, shows up when we talk about you know, the value of different technologies and uh, what you know, we should or should not be using. We, we can't say that without thinking about the context of you know, what does that mean for the people working in those technologies. Um, you know, taking CSS aside, WordPress is a really interesting example. Uh, as a developer, I love to hate on WordPress for people who are trying to get content sites up and are perhaps not super technical, I recommend it every day. And so having that distinction between, well, this isn't my technology of choice, but I can see that there's still value there for different types of people. And if I were to say, no, you absolutely should not 
do WordPress, I'm actually doing an incredible disservice to a huge number of people. Yeah, I think it's extremely, it's extremely hard, in my opinion, to be able to say that any decision you make as a human has absolutely no emotion in it and is 100% logical. I think that's a huge fallacy that people try and perpetuate in this culture. So I'm really glad that you made that point, Kevin. So true. (laughs) One other thing that we were talking about a little bit before we went on, but we wanted to sort of go out here is uh, the value of being a little provocative (laughs) and pushing things out. So, you know, this post created, as I said, a very bipolar set of reactions. Um, there was a huge number of primarily men who jumped in early and were saying, what is this? You know, this is terrible. You're, I don't even understand what you're saying. You must have a big, huge agenda. You're a social justice warrior, all these other things. Um, and then there was another wave of much more mixed genders who were saying, oh my gosh, this is exactly right. Um, and there's a question to be said, you know, if you have that type of polarized reaction, are you actually making an impact? But I think uh, I draw a lot of inspiration from a woman named uh, Kim Creighton, who is doing something she calls Cause a Scene. She has a podcast and she does a bunch of stuff online. Um, she's highlighting particularly the impacts of white supremacy throughout things. But one of her big points is people don't ever change when they're comfortable. So if we have a situation that has negative human consequences. And I think that we do very much have that situation when it comes to race, when it comes to color in the tech industry. We have huge problems here. Uh, the only way we can ever actually have an impact on that is to make the people who are currently in privilege uncomfortable. Um, and I include myself in that, right? Like I follow a bunch of people whose uh, commentary, including Kim actually, whose commentary will often make me uncomfortable, but it makes me think about, you know, am I seeing the world right? Like, is, is there something real to this? How am I complicit in maintaining things that I nominally disagree with? That's so true. And I think it takes like a good bit of introspection to be proactive and putting yourself out there like that. But it's so valuable to, to yourself and to the people around you, to the community. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Rollbar. How important is it for you to catch errors before your users do? What if you could resolve those errors in minutes and then deploy with confidence? That's exactly what Rollbar enables for software teams. One of the most frustrating things we all deal with is errors. Most teams either A, rely on their users to report errors, or B, use log files and lists of errors to debug problems. That's such a waste of time. Instantly know what's broken and why with Rollbar. Reduce time wasted debugging and automatically capture errors alongside rich diagnostic data to help you defeat impactful errors. You can integrate Rollbar into your existing workflow. It integrates with your source code repository and deployment system to give you deep insights into exactly what changes caused each error. Give Rollbar a try today at no cost to you. No credit card is required. Our listeners get access to the Bootstrap plan with 100,000 events for free for 90 days. To get started, head to rollbar.com slash changelog. So we danced around the topic a little bit when we were discussing some parts of your article cable, but we wanted to focus this segment on specifically what exactly is CSS in JS, given that it is a new-ish approach to um, being able to develop front-end applications that need you know, specific styling. And for me, the a very loose definition of what I understand CSS and JS to be is that we might you know, some approaches might move away from having a single or, you know, multiple um, cascading style sheet files and moving CSS to be defined more on a very heavily scoped level by creating CSS styles with JavaScript code itself. And a lot of the time, as I said, heavily scoped, it's scoped down on a component level, especially when using frameworks such as React or Vue or Ember or Angular uh, or something like that. So is that sort of on the same page as everyone else? Or do you sort of see it to be a little bit more broader than that? That makes sense to me. I would say one um, point of clarification for people who haven't really looked into this much is 
Sometimes people assume CSS and JS to mean it's actually applying like a style attribute, but that is just, that's just inline style. So um, CSS and JS would actually be applying a style sheet. Got it. There are a wide range of approaches to CSS and JS. Um, you know, it is a, uh, actually a relatively complex topic and there are also ranges in terms of people's sort of approaches to it. Um, you know, I think you get everything from, uh, what is, what looks very much like inline styles. Like we're going to, you define all of these things essentially as inline styling in your commonly JSX because it's React is so dominant on a lot of these things. And I think that's also, you know, was one of the big entree points for CSS and JS. So you get what looks like inline styles, even though it may end up compiling out uh, to something else to, you know, I think other approaches, like I really like uh, the CSS blocks uh, library that came out of LinkedIn where they are essentially applying, uh, you know, they're, they're using CS, separated CSS files, uh, but they're, you know, and they're applying a ton of static analysis to it and then uh, putting in scoping. So I think your definition, um, Suze, of, you know, basically being able to scope styles programmatically to components um, is kind of the core common shared thing. Um, but there's there's a very wide range of then ways that people approach that. Some of which I think lead to very bad practices, uh, and some of which I think are extremely positive. I think I may have misspoke too. I didn't. I said style sheet. I meant like a style tag. I think one of the main reasons that the CSS and JS has kind of come about is because we're we are thinking more in components. Uh, like Cable said, with with React specifically, like everything is is a component in there, and we're we're working with that and. React kind of changed the paradigm by mixing our quote unquote HTML into our JS uh, via JSX. Uh, but then we still have this separate thing of CSS that we have to get loaded somewhere else. And now as we've moved on to um, NPM is kind of our main source of components and and frameworks and everything uh, related to the, to the front end, um, it, CSS kind of is a, a different thing that might be a little bit harder to pull in uh, because you'd have to think about managing your components, but then also pulling in a style sheet when you're, when you're uh, taking components from like a library or something and managing that. Whereas if you can put that into JavaScript, then you can think about it just as one component that contains this markup and this CSS that's all defined in this one file that JavaScript will define for me and then manage loading when you need it and when, and it won't be there when you don't. So if a component is not used, uh, the CSS that's associated with that is not brought in and, uh, left as unused roles on the page. I, I'm somebody, I can critique a lot of things about CSS and JS, but let's actually highlight um, some of the really, the places where it really shines. Um, so, you know, one of the things where we see a lot of folks who are really, you know, going whole hog into CSS and JS and where it is extremely valuable is in uh, development environments where you have very large numbers of components, particularly developed by large numbers of teams or, or across different teams where, you know, having to worry about anything that is in any way global uh, is a huge headache. And so you want to be able to scope things down. Now, uh, one of the interesting things to me about uh, the sort of CSS debate is, you know, one of the, the big critiques that people make of it is, oh, globals are always bad. And I think, you know, we found in programming that tends to be true. Globals are very hard to reason about. Um, and that's, I think, one of the big challenges in CSS. Uh, the thing I want to highlight there is thinking about domains. Um, so people's reaction to a product visually is global. It is not isolated. You know, people perceive a product as a whole. Um, and if you ever you know, go and walk through a demo with somebody who is non-technical and is using your application, you'll be shocked at the the ways in which they don't think about it the way you as an engineer thinks about it. Like they're not looking at, oh, that's a component and that's a thing down in there. Like they're just having a global perception. And one thing that we often run into um, and that I, I've talked to a number of folks about and nobody really has a great solution for is like 
when you don't have a global perspective on it, you end up with a funhouse mirror where things are almost alike, but not quite alike. And people get, you know, you end up with what is sort of like what Amazon has ended up with, where people get really confused because everything looks slightly different. And especially if you look in like AWS, right? The AWS UI is the most confusing thing you'll ever see because everything is isolated by component. There's no global perspective. There's no uh, sort of coherence across it. And so, you know, I would actually highlight that for while there are some things that are extremely valuable to isolate completely, and there are situations in which the downsides of uh, the possible downsides of global perspective are higher than the downsides of isolation, um, going towards a complete isolation is not necessarily the right answer for something that is on a kind of design and visual level. I almost feel like the trade-offs kind of depend on the team. So I know for me, when I was really, you know, really trying to learn CSS apart from, you know, kind of the basics I had learned, um, what was challenging to me is kind of like you were saying. So when I was writing JavaScript, I'm used to really thinking about things in isolation. And CSS just is not designed to work that way. There are side effects and those side effects um, from my understanding of kind of like reading old blog posts and people's thoughts who have been in this for a while is that like CSS was designed that way on purpose. So all that to say, if the, if the people on the team are are used to these side effects and actually, you know, use these side effects to their advantage because they understand them, having things scoped by default could actually be confusing. But if you have a team of people who feel more comfortable in JavaScript and are not really up to date with the nuances of CSS and how these different side effects all kind of communicate with each other, um, then having things scoped is going to be helpful. When there are some things for which scoping is necessary or, or extremely valuable. Yes. Right? Like even CSS best practices, if you're using pure CSS, like a lot of things you're moving to try to make them isolated and scoped. However, that is not necessarily the same statement that everything should and always be <laughs> scoped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's funny that you bring you brought up Amazon earlier and with their UI because I did work for an Amazon subsidiary a number of years ago. And we had a lot of insights into why a lot of their UI was fragmented and not necessarily in AWS, but across the actual Amazon retail website as well. And we watched their latest UI update um, strategy where they were trying to solve that because it's like what Amy says about Teams their teams were so siloed, even on what looked like very similar parts of the retail site. And they had a lot of trouble where they were creating their own very heavily scoped things for their own teams, but not able to communicate or share code uh, effectively enough across those siloed teams. And that became a huge problem for being able to deploy multiple parts of the site at once and not have this really weird, you know, um, fragmented and disconnected experience for the users to then have to deal with afterwards. And so it it really does depend on teams based on what I observed there and then what I've observed while working on other teams that actually managed to make something like that work. You know, this comes back to that question of nuance, right? And say, you know, every engineering choice is about trade-offs and those trade-offs are not purely technical. They also include, you know, team level trade-offs and human level trade-offs. And I think it is 100% legitimate to evaluate and decide and say, you know what, uh, for our team setup, CSS and JS is the right approach and we should be doing that. And I say that as someone who's generally a critic of CSS and JS and I don't, uh, like it for many situations. Um, but I think it's, you know, it, it is 100% the right solution in some scenarios. That said, one should also be aware of the trade-offs with that you know many css and js solutions have performance trade-offs because your know, javascript is the most expensive thing in your system uh, so if you're moving all of your css into your javascript and not making it parsable you may win a little bit of uh, fragmentation benefits and lose on performance particularly on you know cacheability and things like that um, 
you know, there's lots of other challenges that you run into. I think there's maintainability challenges. You know, I know we all love uh, the rethinking of how um, separation of concerns works that uh, reacted JSX prompted, but looking at some of these things that have JSX with inline uh, CSS and JS with whatever, like I am, I have serious trouble reading those things. And it's just so much different things you have to absorb all at once. Um, and I, I far prefer something closer to like views approach where you actually legitimately have, you know, you still have this potentially the scoping by components and they have a, a built-in way to scope styles and then do module level styles. There's really interesting stuff uh, that view is doing there, but they still separate conceptually. Okay, here's a template. Here's the JavaScript. Here's the style. And I think there's tremendous value uh, in being able to isolate how many things you have to hold in your head at the same time. Uh, so while once again, like there, are, you know, that is something to be like. There are absolutely situations where completely scoped CSS and JS is the right solution. Uh, one should be very aware of the trade-offs you're making to do that. I'd also yeah, say too. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that I think you can live in both worlds as well. Um, like you, like Angular, for example, uh, has the ability to do inline styles or reach out to a separate style sheet, but then it's going to scope all of that to the component you're working on. But then you can have any number of top level style sheets that are just applied to the page. So you could have anything that needs to be utilized by all of the components that you might be making can be up in the global scope, but then anything that's like structural to that component can be scoped specifically to that so you're not bleeding that out anywhere that shouldn't be. I would say too, now, you know, I don't think this is probably the case for a lot of people, but um, maybe some potentially like more beginner developers. But if you're not, the thing I see a lot happen is people reaching for JavaScript to still do things like animations. And that, like you were saying, is going to have a performance hit because the the browser has, you know, the browser is going to use the GPU for these animations, whereas if you're using JavaScript to do them, it's using the CPU, it's going to be a lot slower. And that's a good uh, sort of highlight of, you know, we we don't hesitate to use third-party code to get our job done better. We'll consider that CSS is essentially a direct line into the browser's rendering engine. Like we are able to lean on what is, in my opinion, probably the most powerful rendering engine out there uh, and get directly into that. And if you try to reinvent all of that with JavaScript because you didn't bother to learn CSS, like you're going to have problems. Um, I think it was Sarah Drasner who famously, she tweeted at some point that she had seen a team where, where there was, uh, you know, somebody had implemented something in two or 3,000 lines of JavaScript because they didn't understand how position absolute worked, right? Like there's, and, it, and that's extremely plausible. Like you get tremendous power from CSS, especially modern CSS. Like it, it's funny to me that CSS and JS is such a thing right now because the CSS spec and what's supported is uh, improving at a faster rate than it has ever in history. And the power that we have available to us tapping directly into the browsers with CSS is phenomenal. So one wouldn't choose not to, you know, it's like the not invented here thing, right? Like I wouldn't, it's not a good idea to choose to re-implement every library that I might want to use because I'm going to do it badly and it's going to perform worse. Like really, we should use the tools that are available to us. I totally agree. And that calls out uh, another disadvantage of doing all of the um, CSS within JavaScript. And that is that a lot of the time, um, some of the approaches require an additional library in JavaScript in order to do so. And, you know, I, I had a look at a bunch of the different options out there of which we will share a link as well in the show notes. Um, but some of them are, you know, oh, it's only five kilobytes gzipped. Um, but that's another five kilobytes you're adding to your payload that your user is downloading. And you mostly have that payload because 
that was a developer experience um, improvement and not necessarily a user improvement. Like sure, that might allow you to have less CSS bugs because you know you find that particular library a good experience to use, but you are still pushing that trade-off off onto the user. And it's interesting that if CSS is getting these extra features, like even things such as custom properties and variables and things like that, there's no reason why we shouldn't be going back to revisit it because we do have a direct advantage in using those features and those features are being developed for us and being able to provide that feedback um, is something that I really admire that Rachel Andrews pushes. If no one is using these new features, then you're not going to be able to have them be, um, you know, be developed into even better quality features for us to use. And so this, this whole cycle perpetuates where we're trying to reinvent things. This episode is brought to you by Vettery, a hiring marketplace that connects job seekers and tech with the hiring managers from top companies in the U.S. And I had a chance to talk with Brian Levy, VP of product, about one of the most memorable and impactful things about the job seekers experience on Vettery. Every candidate on Vettery gets assigned their very own talent executive who guides them every step of the way. The talent executives is an internal team that works with candidates as they're coming on the platform, helps them fill out their preferences. We get on the phone with job seekers and talk through their backgrounds and what they're looking for in their career. And then once job seekers are on the platform, we help them look into roles and companies that they're interviewing with and talk through offers that they get on the platform in order to make sure that they get tailored offers that meet their requirements and their career goals. It sounds like you're holding a candidate's hand through the whole process. Yeah, definitely working with a talent executive is essentially having a personal career coach who can help you think through how does a job relate to your career goals? Like, what should I be asking for in an offer? What should I be doing to prepare for an interview? Uh, essentially what a career coach would do. So it's often a very isolating experience. Vettery has found a way to ensure that job seekers aren't alone in the process. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that it's really something that we hear a lot from job seekers on Vettery is that working with a talent executive is often the thing that is most memorable and most impactful about their experience on Vettery is that they have someone to bounce ideas off of who can help them think through their career goals and decide, is this the right company for me? And um, if it is, how am I going to land this job? All right, take that first step, head to vetery.com slash changelog to learn more and get started. Also, our listeners get a $500 signing bonus when you find your job through Vettery. Once again, that's vetery, V-E-T-T-E-R-Y.com slash changelog. And by DigitalOcean, the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams. Deploy, manage, scale faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Managing infrastructure is easy for teams, whether you're running one virtual machine or thousands. Use our special link to get $100 credit for DigitalOcean and try it today for free. Head to do.co slash changelog. Once again, do.co slash changelog. So in the previous segment, we danced around, you know, a couple of different approaches to CSS and JS. But for this segment, I want to dive a little bit deeper into just a couple of examples, just so that people can get a feel of what the differences are between, um, you know, several different approaches. So uh, Nick, do you have a particular strategy that you've either used and liked or have just been able to play with for a little bit? Uh, yeah, I've played with styled components uh, a little bit. and. So what that is, is it's using uh, CSS, or sorry, it's using template literals in JavaScript to allow you to implement CSS. Uh, and it allows you to do that by uh, using the, the template tag, uh, like for a div, you can say style.div or style.a uh, and create an anchor tag or a div tag. And then you use the backticks and you put all of your CSS in there without the, the curly braces. So just like all of the CSS rules, like padding, margin, all of that. Uh, just directly in line, and then that gives you back a component that you can use that has all of those styles that will be applied to it. Uh, not in line, but um, they'll be applied via a style sheet that is generated and and um, scoped directly to that element. And so it allows you to to take advantage of doing JavaScript within that because you can 
do interpolation within those template tags and um, add in specific rules from your JavaScript in there, which which makes it pretty easy. Uh, another one that I've played with is um, what we do on on Dojo, which is not really CSS and JS, but it's uh, more using post CSS and specifically CSS modules to scope the uh, CSS that you would write in a CSS file to the module that you're working on. Uh, and then additional to that, we generate um, uh, typings files because we use TypeScript primarily. We generate typings files for the CSS so that uh, you can get feedback on the rules that you have available and to ensure that you don't accidentally misspell those classes. That's a super interesting approach. I'm I'm actually really excited to read more about that on the Dojo website. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. One of the things I really like about CSS modules and then also uh, this newer thing from LinkedIn called CSS Blocks is that they are both, I think, I've looked more into to blocks than modules, so maybe you can speak to the modules a bit, but they're both leaning into the fact that uh, to sort of the principle of least power and the fact that uh, CSS is much more e- uh, much easier to statically analyze than JavaScript is. Um, and so you know, CSS blocks, which I can speak more to, you know, they do a static compilation and they do a ton of you know analysis and optimization and various other things as a part of that kind of compilation step. Um, and unlike many of the the JavaScript, or CSS and JS libraries uh, that you alluded to with the 5K minified, whatever, like the runtime is minimal. Um, you know, CSS blocks, it's like 500 bytes. I don't know what it is for CSS modules, but you know, it's tiny because they're doing almost everything at compile time, taking advantage of the fact that you know, the less uh, generally powerful all languages, the more statically analyzable it is. You know, And this comes back to this idea of like, do it in HTML. If you can't do it in HTML, add CSS. If you can't do it in CSS, add JavaScript. That's not there. I mean, that's that principle. We've kind of gotten away from it, but there are serious values to that because the more simple the language in some ways, or at least the more uh, statically analyzable the language, the more that machines can do with it. I guess I can chime in with what I've been using the most. And our team is also using CSS modules. And I think the decision for that, so I actually have not been writing any CSS at the job that I'm at now because I'm no longer at Warner Brothers um, because I actually did want to get back into JavaScript land. Um, And so we have a designer who does all of our styles. Um, But I think that, you know, they probably chose CSS modules because it seems like a little bit of a happy medium if you're not ready to go completely if you're not ready to go all in with javascript it kind of gives you some of the benefits where you know you can kind of have it i guess you would think of it as like automating them so um you can encapsulate things without going all in with javascript yeah um i think both suze you were mentioning you could talk to this but i could also talk to i've been using view quite a bit recently and they have an approach uh where within a single file component you can set up uh, both you could actually use CSS modules, so you could do module uh, a module type of a style thing that's within the single file component that c- gets compiled to a CSS module. But you can also do just scoped uh, components, which isn't quite as rigorous. Uh, it uh, uses kind of a data attribute on the component to scope your styles to that component. And the distinction that gets made is with a scoped component, um, it actually applies to that component and every child thereof. Uh, whereas with the CSS modules, it takes it, keeps it straight or within your code. Um, and I think that actually gives you also a really nice way to get this kind of combination effect. Um, I particularly like the, the scoped approach because I think, you know, if you want to lean into the cascade, but you also want to have some level of isolation to just this component or have this only be loaded when, you know, that set of subcomponents is loaded, it gives you a really nice way to do that. I totally agree. And that's, that is something that I did with the project that I did recently. Um, I, I've been out of the front end world for a little bit of time. I was a front end developer for 13 years, just for that context. And then I moved into IoT and cloud stuff um, for my latest job. And I had to write a um, an application that was IoT based. And it's actually an open source project that um, that I work on on my stream on the, the weekends. And 
I, th- I thought to myself, man, I've been out of front ends for a year and a half now, and I feel like so much has changed and I didn't really get a chance to look at CSS and JS or anything. And so I guess I felt really intimidated. And so I thought, well, I'll write this app in Vue so that I can learn a new framework. Um, and then when I got to the CSS side, I noticed that they have these those sort of template setups that that you were mentioning earlier. And I liked that, but part of me was still wanting to reach for what I was really comfortable with, which is leaning on the cascade and having actual physical .css starsheet files and things like that. And so the, the balance that I came up with just so that I didn't get myself in a huge mess was to define everything in the style sheets that were inherently going to be quite static and fixed. And then anything to do with components that were going to change or could take advantage of JavaScript to do, you know, sophisticated calculations and things, that's when I would um, specify certain things to override um, the cascade from there. Um, And that's just directly using like a JavaScript object and then assigning it as an actual style attribute. And so, you know, there could be reasons why that would um, have gotchas in it, but I found that to be really successful, even just trying to ramp up to something that I wasn't really sure was going to be that beneficial to me. And I would say that so far that's been a success, but I'd also have to ask some of my other contributors what they think about that. I posted a link to the the uh, room that'll be in the show notes uh, that gives you a good uh, demonstration of CSS and JS with 14 different implementations of a login page using all sorts of different libraries. So it's a good way to compare different uh, strategies and approaches. That looks really cool. I'm absolutely going to check that out. That That's using the Stripe page, you said? Uh, it, it was originally based off of that. I think it's changed a little bit. Oh, cool. Yeah, I feel like there are just so many approaches right now and that the, the biggest thing when you start um, along this path is just choosing something and and feeling like you don't want to waste your time on something that's not going to work for you at all. So this is really helpful. So I wanted to touch on something that hasn't been mentioned yet that is sort of still very relevant to the CSS and JS discussion, and that's the Houdini project. Um, Has anybody looked deeply into Houdini or is particularly excited about it that wants to talk about what that is? I love Houdini. It is so cool. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) This is something that I actually didn't know about until JSConf this year, just a a month ago or so. Uh, And it's, it's something that one of the speakers brought up to me uh, and was really excited about, and it, I started looking into it, and it's it's really uh, an interesting uh, an interesting approach to um, extending CSS going forward. Yeah, the when I was talking about you know, being able to directly tap into the browser as the most powerful rendering engine in the world, like this is taking that and like ten xing it and saying, hey, not only are we going to let you. Uh, build using these things that we've already figured out, but we're actually going to give you hooks into that underlying engine so you could build your own. I, I hear that. And um, the cynic in me is like, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> like, I feel like the most exciting part about Houdini is they are opening this up, I think, more so for feedback. So, you know, and I kind of think of it as like Babel for CSS because now that developers kind of have the ability to hook into the rendering pipeline, we can kind of communicate back and forth with like the different browser vendors and say, you know, hey, we built this thing and the community thinks it's valuable. And you know, then the browser vendors can go back and implement it. Exactly. Yeah. The Babel analogy is is exactly right. You know, Babel once one, it lets you polyfill things transparently for a very large number of things, which is extremely valuable. It's something we've had in JavaScript for a while, but haven't really had in CSS. Um, but two, it Babel has completely revolutionized the speed of change and improvement in the JavaScript language. You know, having that feedback loop, that tight ability to test these new things out uh, before they get fully uh, resolved, inspect, and and laid out has just been incredible. It's taken JavaScript from what was essentially a moribund language to being the most dynamically changing language in the world. Uh, and now we're talking about that for CSS. It's it's great. Uh, I'd like to just take a step back and explain what Houdini is uh, from a high level, just in case you haven't heard of it, because um, 
a lot of people haven't, like me. Uh, and it's really a collection of APIs that allows you to uh, get into the the rendering context of the the browser, or um, and it allows you to to get in there and change things about how CSS lays out things. So there's a, there's a layout API, a paint API, a parser API, which is what you'd be able to do uh, to use to create your own CSS syntax. Uh, and then from there, there's things like worklets uh, that allow you to run code uh, parallel to the JavaScript code, the other JavaScript code that you're writing in uh, something that's like a worker, um, but then have access to the 2D rendering context, kind of similar to uh, a canvas object. So you can actually do uh, a lot more animation-friendly things just by writing and using custom CSS rules. Do you think it's going to replace a lot of JS or CSS in JS uh, techniques, or where do you think it can smooth over things the best if we take it back to some of the problems that CSS and JS is solving? I think it's solving different problems. I think this is about you know, solving the, well, a couple of things, but one big piece of this is solving the browser support issue. Um, CSS has historically had a very slow adoption curve for new features because of the browser adoption curve. And one thing we've gotten a lot better at on that is having evergreen browsers that keep updating. Uh, but this would be taking that to another level because it creates the equivalent of a Babel where you can not only uh, you know, have modern stuff getting adopted faster, but you have the ability to pre-distribute uh, things by having you know, polyfills that actually hook into the low-level rendering APIs. How ready is Houdini to, uh, to be able to use it today? Or is it still something that's in process that's a little buggy, et cetera? It's not ready. <laughs> yeah, there is a really good site um, just called Is Houdini Ready Yet? And they update that with the various different APIs and kind of where they are in the progress of things. And unfortunately, I think the only sad thing is um, it seems like, although this is an effort between multiple browsers. I know Chrome just really is kind of blazing ahead more than others. Yeah. So right now Chrome has support for the paint API and the typed object model. And then behind a flag in Canary, it has support for three other APIs. Uh, and they're really leading, leading the charge with that, um, with uh, Mozilla coming in second. So I do think one of the things that we've seen in some scenarios is like having somebody willing to leave the charge like that can often be a catalyst for change. Uh, once you have it out there and people are actually using it um, and demonstrating the value, then the rest of the browser vendors can kind of come along behind. And we've seen more enthusiasm about that broadly of late. Um, I think one actually really interesting example of that is in, in sort of a, a funny way is actually Safari with iOS. Um, there were a whole bunch of mobile-specific browser techniques that were introduced by Safari first and then have kind of gotten standardized across because they were useful. Um, and this is a place where uh, Chrome is really blazing ahead, which is not uncommon, uh, but it may, you know, if we could get a lot of demonstration of the value of this, may encourage the other browser vendors to push forward. So does anybody have any more resources for those who want to get started with either Houdini or um, CSS in JS? So Houdini, I posted in the Slack, uh, houdini.glitch.me is a fascinating site uh, set up by, I think it's Sam Richards, um, that really demonstrates a lot of the power of Houdini um, with a bunch of interesting examples. Um, and they both have an explanation of how it works, uh, but then you can also often see examples if you're in a browser that supports it. I can also, I'll add into the Slack, um, the actual Houdini drafts if people want to read through that on GitHub. Awesome. And Ben in our community Slack has said that for the Emotion library for doing CSS and JS, um, the documentation apparently has some really awesome examples to getting started with. So we'll also drop a link into that, which is emotion.sh. So that finishes up this episode of JS Party. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed it as much as we did producing it. I think that CSS and JS is a fascinating topic that we could always talk about forever, uh, but we'll leave it there today. And we want to thank you again for listening and we'll catch you next time. And thank you so, so much to Amy for coming on our show too. We, you are absolutely delightful to speak to. Thank you for having me. I had fun with you guys. 
I thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. Read us an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLaw because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers. Head to Leno.com slash ChangeLaw. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLaw.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.